0: Hi everybody, Merry Christmas, Happy Boxing Day, Happy New Year, uh, and a festive Yule. This, as you might know, is our final episode of the season, but I just want to say thank you again to all of you and to let you know that soon I'll be releasing the extended versions of the interviews you'll hear today. So keep a lookout for that. Please stay safe, stay healthy, get your booster, and I will see you again in a few months. In the 1840s, the reputation and celebration of a holiday that had once been most associated with drunken revelry, debauchery, and the occasional street brawl, would change forever. Christmas in England had long been a beloved time among the common folk, but during the puritanical reign of Oliver Cromwell, Christmas was all but outlawed, reeking as it did of the heretical high church pomp of the papists and prone to bringing out the least pious and most ungodly behaviors of the people. In 1647, the people of Canterbury rebelled in what's now known as the Plum Pudding Riot, a day of football, that is to say soccer, and fistfights and other well-worn Christmas festivities, leading to the writing of the following anonymous declaration. Quote, The Declaration of Many Thousands of the City of Canterbury, or County of Kent, Concerning the late tumult in the city of Canterbury, provoked by the mayor's violent proceedings against those who desired to continue the celebration of the Feast of Christ's Nativity, 1,500 years and upwards maintained in the church, together with their resolutions for the restitution of his majesty to his crown and dignity, whereby religion may be restored to its ancient splendor and the known laws of the kingdom maintained. End quote. Indeed, it's not a stretch to say that it was the love of Christmas revelry that put the monarchy upon the restoration of Charles II in 1660 back in charge. But Christmas, as it always had, changed with the times, and by the Victorian age it was ready for reinvention. In 1841, Victoria married her German cousin Prince Albert, who brought his cultural traditions to England with him, including the Tannenbaum. The decorated evergreen tree that tied German Christmas to its pagan, Yuletide roots. By 1842, newspaper advertisements for the sale of Christmas trees were already appearing, and by the end of the next decade, the Christmas tree would be a staple in English homes at Christmas time. And the next year, 1843, saw the publication of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Dickens' writing of a Christmas Carol was the subject of the 2017 film The Man Who Invented Christmas. And while Dickens, of course, didn't invent Christmas, it's fair to say that he, more than any other single person, is responsible for the Christmas we celebrate today. But Dickens' story is a ghost story, and the Christmas ghost story tradition goes back centuries. It's at the very root of the English Christmas spirit, pun intended. A Christmas carol is woven with threads taken from deep inside England's pagan past, including the giant bearded ghost of Christmas present, Clad in green fur robes and adorned with a holly wreath, this ghost is the English Father Christmas, a figure who was born in the winter wilderness, far away from the Mediterranean saint with whom he would later merge. Dickens gave modern England a way to celebrate Christmas that is at once distinctly Christian, with peace on earth and goodwill to men and pagan. He died in 1870 at the age of 58. Eight years later, also in England, another writer, one who would serve as England's poet laureate for 37 years, and who, like Dickens, would garner international acclaim, and would also, like Dickens, write a novel that would weave English pagan folklore with a redemptive tale of Christmas magic. He was John Macefield, and his book, published 92 years after A Christmas Carol, was The Box of Delights. I'm John Brooks. Merry Christmas. This is Hard to Believe. John Macefield was born on the 1st of June, 1878, in Ledbury, in Herefordshire, England, which borders Wales and England's West Midlands. Ledbury was an old market town, which means that, in the Middle Ages, it had obtained a charter to hold a regular market, making it an important hub of trade. He was not the first great poet Ledbury produced. That would be Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who died 17 years prior to Macefield's birth. Nor would he be the last, as Ledbury was also the birthplace of Richard Ashcroft, lead singer of The Verve, born four years after Masefield's death. Masefield's young life was marked with tragedy. His mother, Caroline, died giving birth to John's sister. Not long after, his father, George Masefield, also died, having suffered a mental breakdown, leaving John to live with his hated Aunt Kate. Masefield's status as a young orphan would later be applied to the protagonist of the companion novels Midnight Folk and The Box of Delights, Kay Harker.
1: That's common to a lot of children's literature. Everybody has to be an orphan, otherwise they can't have fun. I'm Philip Barrington, and I've done a lot of work on Macefield. I did a PhD many moons ago uh, on Macefield and published a bibliography of him. But as far as uh, Box of Delights is concerned, I've edited the book for um, the various editions which are in print at the moment and I've also written a book about the book. I was very young when I read The Box of Delights for the first time. My mother had just read it and said, I think you'll enjoy it and I did. I, I absolutely devoured it and I found out that there was another book which is The Midnight Folk and I devoured that as well and then I found that Macefield had written a vast quantity of stuff.
0: That vast quantity of stuff was dominated by Macefield's poetry, which itself was overwhelmingly centered around life at sea. In his youth, Masefield spent much time watching the ships coming through the Hereford and Gloucester Canal. The picturesque nature of his hometown, which he once referred to as a paradise, fueled his natural gift as a keen, poetic observer of nature and humanity. And his curiosity and adventurous spirit along with his hatred of his cold and demanding Aunt Kate, ultimately led him to leave school at age 13 and board the HMS Conway, a school ship used to train future naval officers. Aunt Kate hoped a life at sea would cure John of his love of literature, frivolous as it was. It did the very opposite. But after spending several years at sea, exploring far-flung exotic corners of the world, he decided to jump ship. If he cut himself
1: adrift from home from all links and became a vagrant a homeless vagrant in the states there was no way that anyone could track him down so macefield had this period um, in the 1890s of homelessness in the states tramping around the new york area so much so that um, during the first world war when the UK needed somebody who could understand the American psyche or could get inside the American mind. It was Macefield who was sent. So Macefield undertook lecture tours in the States, um, became quite a well-known personality. Um, and this continued. He, he you know, the bestsellers were bestsellers in in, in the States.
0: He returned to England two years later, and in 1901, the 23-year-old Macefield married 35-year-old Constance de la Chiroir Commelin, with whom he had two children, and to whom he remained married until her death in 1960, at the age of 93. Throughout this period, Macefield continued to see his work published in various outlets. And in 1902, Saltwater Ballads, his first collected works, earned him critical and commercial success. He would never stop being famous for the rest of his life. not just famous in his native country, he was enormously popular in America, too, earning him honorary doctorates from Harvard and Yale. Which begs the question, what happened? If you just stop a stranger in the street, any street, anywhere in America today, and ask them if they've ever heard of John Maysfield, the reply will almost certainly be, no.
1: Where did it all go wrong? Simply, I think that macefield wrote too much there is secondary material that is not as good um but the the other problem is that macefield was his own worst enemy had it not been for the bbc adaptations on radio and then tv nobody would have heard of the boxer delights um now macefield was approached at various times to make um or give his permission to have movies made of his work so the one that i i Cannot believe uh, he, he turned his nose up at was Richard Burton was asked for permission to uh, make a, a film version of Good Friday, one of his biblical um, works from, from around in 1916 or so. Um, well, he refused permission. Uh, he said no. Um, and all the time in the 1960s, there are, there are the sort of publishers coming to him saying, can we reprint this in a cheap edition? Uh, and Macefield said no. He he had got to the stage that he was so successful, um, he didn't need the money, and he felt that with emerging movie rights and TV and radio, he should hold out for the absolute limit of what was reasonable. Uh, he was um, he was president of the Society of Authors, a, a group of writers, and felt it was up to him to to defend their pitch really as a result people didn't republish him in the 1960s um people didn't make the film versions that should have been made um and you know that there are all sorts of um missed opportunities there i, th- I believe douglas fairbanks for example wanted to make a, a version of uh, his poem enslaved um catherine hepburn wanted to be in a film version of the witch there are all these different movies that, that should have been made and could have been made, but Maysfield said no.
0: This might be a good time to explain to the uninitiated what The Box of Delights is actually about. The story is a sequel to 1927's Midnight Folk, in which young K Harker sets out to find his great-grandfather's lost treasure. Also on the hunt for the treasure are the dark wizard Abner Brown and Kay's governess, the loathsome Sylvia Daisy Pouncer, who turns out to have been a dark witch in league with Brown. At the end of the story, Pouncer is replaced as Kay's governess by the loving, pure-hearted Caroline Louisa. The Box of Delights picks up the story sometime later, with Kay on his way back from boarding school to spend Christmas at his family home of Seekings. On the way, he encounters a kind but mysterious old man, Cole Hollings, who travels with a Punch and Judy show, but who is actually the real-life 13th century philosopher Raymond Lull, who later was rumored to be a powerful alchemist, but this is probably false. Hollings is being chased by Abner Brown and his minions, Chubby Joe and Foxface Charles, who seek his magical box of delights, which contains boundless power and also gives its bearer the ability to shrink and fly. Cole and Caroline Louisa are ultimately kidnapped by the bad guys, but not before Cole gives Kay his box. It's up to Kay to keep the box safe and make sure everyone can attend Tatchester Cathedral's 1000th annual Christmas Eve service. Along the way, he goes back in time to King Arthur's camp, encounters pirate mice, and is assisted by Hearn the Hunter, the folkloric spirit of Windsor Forest, who first appeared in writing in Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor. There's also Arnold of Toady, who's the Creator of the box who lives somewhere in the past and hiding. The bad guys can all turn into wolves. It's all pretty complicated, but that's actually what makes it so wonderful.
2: As I reread the book, I was like, oh my God, this is mad. My name is Piers Torday, and I adapted John Masefield's The Box of Delights as a stage show for the first time. The way I really talk about it is it's, you know, Masefield ran away to work in the ships when he was 13. And I, I think he learned how to tell stories sailing around the world on ships. And the Box of Delights, to me, is like the story that an old ancient mariner, you know, with pipes sticking out of his mouth and a uh, sort of tankard of grog in the other, sat, sat on a barrel, might entertain some people in a tavern. Because it, it's sort of wonderful and digressive. You know, one thing happened and another thing happened. But underneath it, there is a story, you know, of Kay Harker and his interaction with this precious box and discovering its gifts. And Cole Hauling's and Abner Brown. There is a there is a definite story there, but it took quite a long time to extract it. And in the end, you know, you realise that whatever you're doing, you're also telling a story at Christmas. And so you're going to have to really bring those to the fore because people are watching this at Christmas, and they're going to want that feel good factor of a show like Christmas Carol, where where we're shown different possibilities, and then it all comes good in the end. And so I decided to kind of reduce i i just had couldn't do the time travel couldn't do all that stuff and just really bring it right down and um the idea was that we take this idea there was really the rivalry between two magicians ancient magicians cole hallings and arnold of toady who we kind of effectively merged with um i'm not sure what john may sort of think about we kind of merged him with abner brown and it's these two magicians who have this incredibly powerful box which they've devised in a wager, which is kind of in the text, in the original text and over the history of time so it's a bit like the ring and many other totemic things that you get in fantasy they fought a battle you know will the good control it will the bad control it and this battle has now finally come to the present day or at least um, to macefield's present day the 1930s and the idea is that they're going to use the box to cancel christmas so that's what we did we kind of squeezed all that wonderful story down and kept the sort of key elements. Um, Couldn't have loads of talking rats, sadly, but we had her and the Hunter. We had Kay Shrink using puppetry. We have Cole Hollings walking through a painting using stage illusions uh, and video projection. We have a wonderful Phoenix appearing from the box in the uh, drop of dew. We have howling wolves. We have a flying car using kind of model work and the audience's imagination. And so it was a real kind of struggle because there's a lot of story, so it also again a bit like Christmas Carol, there's quite a lot of storytelling but i'm I'm really proud of what we managed to do because I think we managed to take this story and make it make sense to people who never heard of it, but we also managed to delight people who loved it and got to see on stage their favorite characters, moments, quotes, incidents. There is something about doing that show that it It does feel unbelievably Christmassy, (laughs) so it's a lovely thing to do at the end of the year.
0: Torday's adaptation was the first to put Box of Delights on stage, but the book has remained remarkably prone to adaptation in other forms over the years. The BBC Children's Hour series produced a six-part radio play of the book adapted by Robert Holland and John Keir Cross three separate times, first in 1943 and then 1948 and 1955. All three were narrated by Children's Hour staple Norman Shelley, who also appeared in Children's Hour adaptations of Wind in the Willows, Sherlock Holmes, Lord of the Rings, in which he played both Gandalf and Tom Bombadil, and Winnie the Pooh, in which he played Pooh himself. Radio 4 produced two versions, again with a script from John Keir Cross, for the Saturday Night Theater series in 1966 and 1977. Shelley appeared in the first of those as well, this time in the plum role of Abner Brown's duplicitous spy, Rat. Radio 4 also produced a new version in 1995 with a script from John Peacock. And this year, the brilliant team at Big Finish Productions released a brand new adaptation, featuring David Warner as Arnold Otote, Mark Gatiss, who you may know as Mycroft Holmes from Stephen Moffat's series Sherlock, and Derek Jacobi as Cole Hollings. But still, the most beloved, definitive adaptation remains Rennie Rye's six-part 1984 BBC television production from a script by Alan Seymour and starring Robert Stevens as Abner Brown and the second doctor himself, Patrick Troughton, as Cole Hollings.
2: The wolves are running.
1: What do they want?
2: They want my box of delights.
1: But doesn't the box protect you from the wolves?
2: Ah, oh, they run me close with that new magic, which I can't guard myself against. Not anymore. I look to you. Will
1: you keep it and see that they never get it? It can make you go small. And it can make you go, <laughs> go swift. <laughs> and it is full of wonder. shall have it under your hand today.
2: They tell me that wolves are running. Going home for the holidays. <laughs> what?
1: anyone else gets in my way meaning the boy meaning the boy young master
2: Hawker only I do date from pagan times and age makes joints to creak
1: gosh his holidays turning out to be better than expected.
2: I guess I must have been about 10 years old and, you know, I was a keen, even then a keen TV consumer, but the box of delights is a very clear memory in my head because obviously this is way before, not just way before catch up and on-demand services, but it's really kind of, I'm not even sure we had a VHS recorder at home. We might've done, I can't remember, but you know, live TV was basically you, it was on, or you missed it, um, and you couldn't record everything. And it was the, we'd been watching this show on Sunday nights, the BBC was showing it, and it was the final episode, the culmination. And I knew we were going to find out what happened to Abner Brown and whether Robin would escape and whether Christmas would be saved, as it were. And I have never felt such a clear sense, uh, at least then at that age, of. You know we were out visiting friends and i was so desperate that we would get back in time to not miss this episode because i was hooked i've never seen anything like it because it was it was magical but it was also quite dark for that age group Um, it was highly peculiar in many ways um it was gripping and it also had animations and special effects that you know now it may seem a little quaint but you know back then for a tv show they were pretty uh ahead of their time you know mixture of animation and tv and people shrinking and changing into things before your eyes so it was really uh powerful stuff so i i the dash home to watch in front of the fire that final episode of box of delights i'll, I'll never forget that was a a key box moment and a key sort of culture moment
0: for me again here's philip errington
2: in the uk the Boxer Delights was the
1: first really big BBC children's drama series. They spent millions on it, um, and it went down really well. But it's it's interesting. I've I've shown it to shown it to my children. Um, my ten year old has been watching it now every Christmas for a couple of years, forced by daddy to watch it. Um, my eight year old is currently being introduced to it, uh, but they don't. They don't turn around and look at the, um, the, the, the artificial um, way that bits of it are shot and, and look at me and say, why are you watching this rubbish? You know, it's got a fantasy. It's got a wonder about it that, that actually still works. Um, <laughs> I was uh, fortunate to see there's a movie chain in the UK called uh, Picture House. And for a couple of years, they decided that they would put on screenings of the BBC series in in the cinema. Um, and, you know, it was only one showing one Christmas at various um, cinemas around the country. And I was fortunate to go to the, the second uh, year that they did this. And Renny Rye, the director, was there. And he said he was really nervous because... Um, we were about to see something that was shot on videotape for a small television in the corner of your living room. And it was about to be projected onto a huge screen. And we were used to the crystal clear definition of you know, fantastic beasts had just come out and all the rest of it. But it wasn't really a nostalgia thing that was going on. The, the, the thing worked beautifully and you can still see, you know, there is still, films that are made with uh pretty dodgy special effects that that can still work um and I think the other the other quality that the bbc adaptation has about it is the quality of the acting um quality of the direction as well but it it all works beautifully together you include a, a former doctor who in there um my favorite my absolute favorite is Robert Stevens I mean here we've got one of the great Shakespearean actors, <laughs> hamming it up for all he's worth, um, and it's it's a magnificent performance. And again, you know, a supporting cast. Um, look at look at uh, Sylvia Daisy Pouncer as played, played by Patricia Quinn. The acting in the in the series um, is is remarkable, which is why I think it still works. Yeah, there are a few special effects that that, that are. Uh, suspect but overall um, if any of your listeners think well should, should, will it reward me in, in spending the time um, yes I think it it will um, I, I think it's a, a wonderful wonderful example of, of 1980s TV but it's a wonderful example of fantasy and 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 make-believe and Christmas spirit and you know I could, I could talk about it for hours.
0: Stevens as it turns out, would be instrumental in helping to enshrine another box of delights tradition. You may have already noticed the use of this theme in the podcast. It comes from the third movement of a work called The Carol Symphony by Victor Healy Hutchinson. Macefield and Healy Hutchinson's lives coincided. Healy Hutchinson was born in 1901 in Cape Town, South Africa, when Masefield was 13 years old. His father, Sir Walter Healy Hutchinson, was governor of Cape Colony from the time of Victor's birth to 1910 and Victor spent much of his early life both in England and South Africa. He displayed a prodigious gift for music at a very young age, and he was taught piano by Sir Donald Tovey. Healy Hutchinson was educated at Eton, and then Oxford, before ultimately pursuing music at the Royal College of Music. Like Maysfield, he is largely tragically forgotten today, save for his one enduring work, the Carol Symphony, four movements adapted from popular Christmas carols, Namely, O Come All Ye Faithful, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, The Coventry Carol, Here We Come a Awasailing, and, importantly for our story, The First Noel." The Carol Symphony debuted in 1927, the very same year Maysfield published Midnight Folk. And Healey Hutchinson may well have been forgotten entirely had the original 1943 BBC radio production of Box of Delights not used it as the theme music. And what a perfect choice it was. Not only was the music contemporary to the story, but the eerie, haunting, mysterious, and ultimately magical aesthetic of Healy Hutchinson's first Noel seems to be telling the very same story as Macefield's book. Healy Hutchinson would die of pneumonia a few years after that adaptation aired in 1947 at the age of 45. But the Box of Delights and the Carol Symphony would, in the hearts and minds of so many, be forever intertwined. And for that, much credit has to be given to Stevens.
1: The Carol Symphony, which if if your listeners don't know it, please, I mean it's a glorious, glorious Christmas piece. but I believe Robert Stevens made it a condition of appearing in the BBC series. Apparently, according to Lady Stevens, um, who I had the fortune you know great privilege of, of chatting to um, only a few months ago, um, apparently Robert Stevens um, remembered the radio adaptation um, and was desperate to play Abner Brown. Um, but stipulated you must use the music. Um, And, you know, the music has continued ever since. Uh, There was a full text reading. I think you can get it on eight CDs of, you know, a full text reading of the the Box of Delights. And the producer was in touch with me and I said, you are going to use the music, aren't you? (laughs) And so um, arrangements were made and they did use the music. Um, And there's a very recent Big Finish Productions. You uh, have done a new... Um, adaptation of the Box of Delights and they've used the music I mean, getting around all sorts of copyright issues or whatever. It's it is now the theme music for Box of Delights. And um, I mean, it's a, it's a glorious piece, absolutely glorious. Um, and certainly in the UK, um, if it's if it's played on the radio, people usually say, oh, and uh, those who remember it, it's the theme tune to the Box of Delights. And as indeed it
0: is. But something about Macefield's biography has always bothered me. Both Arrington and Torday acknowledge that Box of Delights is one of the few foundational texts of the genre of British children's fantasy, which is often infused with a dose of very British Christianity that gave us The Hobbit two years later, and Narnia and The Lord of the Rings in the ensuing decades, and much later, that other famous British youth fantasy about a boy wizard. And if that's the case, then I wanted to know two things. We'll start with the first one. Why did this very famous, highly regarded poet suddenly choose to write a couple of children's fantasy novels in the first place. Again, Philip Arrington.
1: I continue to be fascinated by how and why Macefield wrote these two fantasy novels, because they are his only two fantasy novels. he had given up writing books for children. And then suddenly the Midnight Folk appears out of nowhere. But Midnight Folk is a fantasy. It's not exactly a sort of Christian fantasy. Um, as this gets developed, suddenly out of the blue comes the Box of Delights, which blends, as you quite rightly say, this sort of almost um, world of C.S. Lewis many years before um, and, and has this, this Christian background to it, which is all very, very strange from from Macefield. Um, you mentioned Tolkien. Tolkien was in Oxford as a um, as, as a lecturer, as, as a teacher, um, when Macefield was living down the road as the poet laureate. Um, and so the, my, my favourite Macefield and Tolkien story is that as Tolkien was a uh, professor of Middle English, uh, Macefield got him to dress up uh, dress up as Chaucer and recite one of the Canterbury Tales um, at some festival. I love the idea of of Tolkien dressing up as Chaucer, um, but un- unfortunately, there's there's no there's no real sort of correspondence or, or letters. Um, and I do feel that uh, you, you're absolutely right. Macefield led, led the way in this this genre. Um, but because it wasn't developed because these are are strange or, or sort of freak occurrences it, it's up to others to to run with the idea or develop them in in another way but if you're to if, if you're going to say there's a there's a sort of fantasy world of, of, of literature that, that comes from from oxford in the in the 30s and develops from then um, and you get Lord of the Rings, of course. in in the fifties you get um, you get Narnia, you get C.S. Lewis. It all starts um, more or less for me, I would say, with the Box of Delights in nineteen thirty five. My theory is that um, Aunt Kate dies in nineteen twenty seven, um, and uh, incidentally of of the five of the five Macefield children. Who were who were still alive in 1927? Four attended Aunt Kate's funeral. The one who didn't was John Macefield. Um, But as he's writing at *Midnight Folk*, uh, his aunt dies, and he decides to make her into Sylvia Daisy Pouncer, the witch. Uh, it's, it's beautifully crafted revenge for all time. Um, why not? Why not make the witch of of his childhood into the into Sylvia Daisy Pouncer? Um, in in the Midnight Folk, and the dates absolutely tally. I mean, they are it's it's stunning the 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 the, the closeness. Um, I mean, Aunt Kate certainly makes appearances elsewhere in Macefield. There's a there's an early um, play called The Tragedy of Nan. And uh, it's, it's a very, very interesting play where Nan is orphaned and is brought up by an uncle and aunt. And it's the aunt who she has the showdowns with. And uh, it was it was revived um, a decade or so ago in, in London. And it was striking the the vehemence of Nan as she rails against this this aunt, who spider-like has her in her web and, and taunts her and plays with her and says, you know, all I wanted from you was a bit of love, a bit of understanding. Um, so Aunt Kate was alive when, um, when that piece came out. But um, in, the, in the published script, um, she is just known as Mrs. Pageter. If you look at Macefield's original manuscript, she's known as Kate Architer, Aunt Kate is is there again. So you know the idea is that Macefield, for an evil character, uses uses this this Aunt Kate figure, and makes her into Sylvia Daisy Pouncer, who is the the witch governess of the Midnight Folk, and then turns up again in um, in the Box of Delights as as the witch, which is a marvelous literary revenge, really. The other crucial part um, about The Midnight Folk and and Aunt Kate is that at the end of Midnight Folk, when Sylvia Daisy Pouncer is revealed to be a witch, the person who replaces her as the governess is Caroline Louisa. Now, Caroline Louisa comes up again in uh, The Box of Delights. Um, She is Kay's guardian. Um, She's scrobbled and all the rest of it. But Caroline Louisa is a very important name that was the name of Macefield's own mother. So you've got a very interesting thing going on there that the the guardian, Kate, is replaced by Caroline Louisa. There's, there's, a, there's a very interesting streak of Macefield's own biography coming out in, in these two books.
0: But still the question remains, why is Macefield not remembered for his fantasy work today? Here's Piers Torday.
2: You know, Macefield is slightly, he was ahead of the curve and People like that, we need them, but they often pay a rather unfortunate price because, A, he was such a polymath. He he covered such a span of time, produced so much work, so much poetry, so many novels for and, and for adults, and this wonderful children's story and various other literary c- contributions that it's almost, I don't know, he kind of slightly sits outside of stuff. It would be easier in a way. If he'd just written Box of Delights and then written 12 sequels, I think his place would be assured. But because he just wrote this one book that broke new ground and then other people riffed on it from from C.S. Lewis to Rowling and beyond, who have perhaps done it more impactfully or more enduringly. So I don't know. I don't think the future's assured, but I definitely think there's enough versions of it to attract curiosity, I would have thought, from people who never read saw the TV or read the book. So I'm quietly hopeful that it will that it will endure and that we'll keep on returning to this story, particularly at this time of year.
0: In 2009, just a few years after he directed the fourth Harry Potter film, The Goblet of Fire, director Mike Newell announced his intention to direct a feature film of The Box of Delights, something Piers Torday knows well, as Newell having the rights to the book interfered with his own initial plans for his stage adaptation. Obviously, Newell's film never happened, and Torday's play did, but given the current landscape of fantasy on television, from Game of Thrones to The Wheel of Time to Lock and Key and The Witcher, and even the modern incarnation of Doctor Who, it sure seems like the right time for a new take on the Box of Delights.
2: I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in their endless quest for content that a streamer like Netflix or Amazon Prime might pick up a... I don't know if this is not... like I just. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point... Um, things come full circle
1: if somebody uh, if somebody had the vision to do it at the BBC then you could do so much with it now I think a BBC miniseries, a remake, would be far preferable to a big movie because actually at most you're going to get two and a half um, hours out of it. And Renny Rye's directed version for the BBC miniseries, was, it comes in at about three hours. There's a lot of material in there. Um, and if you can, if you're going to do the fantasy, um, sequences correctly, um, you could really go to town. I mean, there are, there there are some wonderful things in the book, um, which never made it into any adaptation, which could be done really well, really well indeed. But, um, yeah, let's, let's hope, let's hope that it happens. But, um, I, I, kind of kind of get the impression that um, Macefield is so out of favor now um, is uh, it, it's part of that literature of the, the, of the great Unread that, that
0: nobody pitching it would, would
1: get a fair hearing, I suspect.
0: So what ultimately is it that makes stories like The Box of Delights, these haunted, dark, magical fantasies imbued with so much danger and uncertainty? So enduringly, essentially Christmassy. Here's Pierce Torday.
2: Well, I think you can largely blame Charles Dickens for that. Christmas Carol perhaps has an outsized role in creating this very enduring fantasy of the kind of ideal Christmas. But of course, what's interesting about Christmas Carol is that it's both a kind of little morality tale as well as conjuring up the kind of tradition of Christmas which still will possess to this day which is a family gathering with a turkey and games and carols and charity but it is also a ghost story and as such I also think it plays into the other great British Christmas tradition which is telling ghost stories um, which goes way way back and in a sense what I think the modern British children's story and by modern I mean from Macefield on is doing is kind of making that tradition palatable for children so it's the idea of in the darkest nights of the year that we sit around and tell each other stories and some of them are a bit scary what the christmas story tradition allows you to do is kind of combine the two like maceville does here which is quite um you know i mean writing a story in which children are actively involved with sort of diamond thieves and you know where guns and kidnaps are involved is you know if you took it literally um i think people might be like i'm not sure that's suitable i'm not sure children should be reading stories where they go off and try and take on down supervillains like abner brown but when somehow there's a kind of bubble of christmas there's that unreality you know real life stops the curtains are drawn it's dark outside the wolves are indeed running in the shadows and it kind of allows this this kind of story bubble to to exist which is halfway between the, the security of the, you know, by the fire, by the Christmas tree and and the kind of darkness and the snow and the snow outside. And that's why I think, you know, C.S. Lewis returns to it in, in The Lion of Witch and Wardrobe, as you say, why it features in, in, in Harry Potter. And it also because I think it raises the stakes, because just from a, from a more technical point of view rather than a kind of cultural point of view, um, if you're telling a story for children, Christmas is that ultimate time, isn't it? It's the ultimate time when, ideally, the whole family um, is meant to be be together. And you see, time and time again in stories, whether frankly it's Box of Delights or Home Alone, the, the the jeopardy of saving Christmas is one of the most potent for younger audiences and family audiences. And one of the most potent jeopardies there is.
0: Pierce, thank you so much.
2: You too. Look after yourself and Merry Christmas.